off episode 135 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Surfing in the Cane. It's from the band The Dead Rocks. It's on their album International Brazilian Surfs. It appears on this podcast with their permission. This podcast is Monster Kid Radio, your podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And I'm really excited because this time we have a bona fide classic, a monster movie. Yeah, I think so. It's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1954 from Walt Disney. But you know what? There's enough in here to put the movie in Monster Kid Radio's wheelhouse. And if you don't believe me, believe Scott and Tracy Morris from Disney, Indiana. Scott and Tracy have been on the show in the past. Scott's also one of my co-hosts at 1951 Down Place. And they are the high muckety mucks at Disney, Indiana. One of the premier Disney podcasts out there. They are going to talk to me and you about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This is a crossover episode. You can also hear this conversation over at Disney Indiana. The new episode is coming out this Sunday, so go check that out. And anybody from Disney Indiana, any of those listeners who are over here for the first time, welcome. I hope you enjoy your stay here at Monster Kid Radio. You can find links to Disney Indiana on our website at monsterkidradio.net. This is where you can find links to everything that we talk about here on the show. You can even find a link to every band whose music has appeared here on the show and a link to our Facebook group. This is where the conversations happen with listeners between episodes. We also have a Facebook page that you can check out. Just search us up over there. Also at our website, a link to our Live 365 internet radio station and a button that tells you about our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Now, in addition to Scott and Tracy talking to us about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I have something else here as well. A fellow podcaster, a musician, a writer, a guy by the name of Keith Foster. Now, he's never been on the show before, but he certainly has supported me in the past, and I want to support him a little bit. I met him at Rose City Comic Con this past weekend, and we talked a little bit about his Kickstarter campaign. He is the writer behind a comic called Kadoja. It is a kaiju comic. It's about giant monsters trashing a lot of stuff, and there's a Kickstarter campaign that ends soon, and he's looking for your support, and tell you what, it's got the Monster Kid Radio stamp of approval he's trying to put together a hardcover collection of the first five issues of his self-published comic book he's going to tell you about that when i have him on the show we're going to do that and we're going to get scott and tracy we're going to get to all of that right after this it's 1966 the space race is on the cold war is heating up and giant monsters are destroying japan Dai Kaiju Attack, the serialized giant monster story, presented free every week on DaiKaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Dai Kaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. to the outer universe a reality. Satellite space stations in operation for landing and refueling. Apparently we have some deadly neighbors now to space. Captain, it's heading toward us. And now 
the story of the fantastic adventure that befalls mankind's most daring crew of space explorers. Not a sound. Not even the hum of an insect. Is this a dead planet? Landing on an unknown planet, they are captured by long-limbed beauties. When they say, take me to your leader, and they take them to a creature like this, you know they're on planet Venus. And the queen of outer space is Jaja Gabor. The most talked about woman in the world knows what she wants on Venus, too. Then we're the only men on the whole planet? Yes. Wow. You'll see the revolt that brings the planet under the domination of strangely masked females who hate and fear the male animal. Let me kill her now. You're not only a queen, you're a woman, too. Let me see your face. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. <coughs> the war of the sexes. When voluptuous Venusians give battle to spacemen from Earth. The destructive might of incredible space rays that stop man from returning to Earth. Prepare for maximum acceleration. We've never had this guy on the show before, and I kind of regret it. Because I, I've wanted to have him on. We just never made it happen. Keith Foster. How's it going, man? It is going well, Derek. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. This is my first day at the show. I, I only did today, but you've done all weekend? Yes. Uh, Saturday and Sunday, so here we are talking on Sunday. How was yesterday? It's, it was wonderful. I mean, it's it's cool to see the effect of giant monsters getting slightly more popular now. You know, they're more visible. We had Pacific Rim. We had Godzilla. And you see more people kind of get that moment of recognition when they see what we're doing. And one of the things that you're doing, yeah. good segue there, huh? Yeah, huh? yeah. Kadoja. Yes. What can you tell our listeners about it? Kadoja is our giant monster. I work with two other guys. Uh, I'm the writer. And the artist is a gentleman named Rory Smith. The guy who does covers is a guy named Elroy Jenkins. That's his name for the for the covers. <laughs> so Kadoja is part machine, part DNA thing. It was a super weapon created by the military. The backstory is it did so well in initial tests that they shut it down. They didn't want to deal with it. That was three years ago. It woke up this morning. It's angry and it's rampaging. And, uh, and that's kind of how we set up. So the, the people that created it now have to figure out how to stop it. And then you start to have some political things go on. Uh, but at the same time, throughout the story arc, um, you start to get a hint of something much deeper and more sinister. And there's a Lovecraft influence there. And uh, what happens is around issue three, a second monster comes up and we start to play with the Lovecraft concept. And then the two monsters fight at the conclusion of the story. <laughs> I'm just grinning this whole time. I mean, I've read it. Uh, and I've kicked in on the Kickstarter because there's a campaign yes, to yes. put all five issues in a collected edition. Correct, correct. We're trying to do it right. We want to do it in a hardcover graphic novel. Uh, you know, nice binding, nice printing, high quality paper, good resolution, everything. And yeah, collecting all five issues, we're going to put bonus content in there. We're hopefully going to even put a little bit of extra monster destruction in there. Um, and, you know, maybe a couple other pages of content as well, as well as tons of 
bonus things, a couple articles, that type of thing. What are some of the perks people can get for contributing to the Kickstarter? So 33 bucks will get you the graphic novel hardcover delivered to you in the United States. The perk that a lot of people are going for right now is the $99 backer. And the 99 is you get the graphic novel. The graphic novel actually comes with a soundtrack. We wrote music to our own graphic novel. And so you get two soundtracks, the graphic novel, I believe two prints done by the artist as well that you can choose from. He's done a lot of giant monsters. There's a super sweet one yeah. that uh, if for, I think it's in the 200s, like 260, you can get your face in Kadoja as part of a destruction sequence. So if you ever wanted to have a kaiju destroy you... Yes, yes. You, you don't have to have the kaiju destroy you. We can make you a reporter. We can make you somebody fleeing away. I mean, if it was me, I would personally choose the fleeing for destruction or getting destroyed. But that's yeah, just me. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Why, reporter, no! Yeah. Step on me. Give me something. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Victim of annihilation. Something like that. So huge thanks to Keith for chatting with me for a few minutes about his comic book, Kadoja. Follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net to learn more about it. Kadoja is K-O-D-O-J-A dot com. Or go to kickstarter.com and type in Kadoja. You're going to find the campaign to bring this collection together as a hardcover release. Or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. And we will have Keith back on the show down the line. I actually had a little bit more that I recorded with him at Rose City Comic Con, as well as some things that I recorded with a few other Monster Kid Radio... Are they irregulars? People have been on the show before, but we're going to be playing that down the line as well, probably within a week or two. So stay tuned for that. And again, thanks to Keith, and if you can help him out, Monster Kid Radio approves. screen explodes with unprecedented power as the two masters of imagination, Jules Verne and Walt Disney, join to bring you a shattering new experience in entertainment. Read by countless millions, translated into 18 languages, this classic adventure is a story of measureless scope, fraught with fantastic beauty and danger. Four great stars give the spark of life to its leading characters in a series of inspirational performances. Kirk Douglas as the master harpooner, Ned Land. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two. About the flatten fish and the girls I've loved. On nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tale and it's all true. I swear by my tattoo. James Mason is Captain Nemo, who held the destiny of the world in his hands. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Paul Lucas as Professor Aranax of the Paris Institute. I asked you to leave, Professor. You also asked me ashore to show me man's inhumanity to man. 
Why? To justify this, you are not only a murderer, you are a hypocrite. The proof lies out there. You call that murder? Peter Lorre as Conceal. Sure, we're friends. Go ahead. Hit me. Hmm? Hit me. You mean that? Sure, go ahead. You can't miss it. <laughs> now we are friends. The most vivid scenes from the novel become unforgettable on the screen. The luxurious interior of the submarine. The revelation of the hidden mysteries of the deep. We do our hunting and farming here. And the water? The sea supplies all my wants. The mighty harvests of the ocean kingdom. the strange creatures that menace the intruders on the ocean floor. And after a safe return, the memorable dinner party. It's remarkable. This tastes like veal. The flavor deceives you. That is filet of sea snake. Hmm? I guess this isn't lamb. That is brisket of blowfish with sea squared dressing, basted in barnacles. <clears throat> what is it? That's a recipe of my own. Certainly of unborn octopus. <laughs> and to stay in your memory as the most thrilling sequence ever photographed in motion picture history, the terrifying battle with the giant squid. This is uh, Scott from Disney Indiana, and I'm here with my wife, Tracy, of the Disney Indiana Podcast. And we're invading a little bit here on Monster Kid Radio. Uh, we've noticed a pattern this month on the show, not enough talky-talky films. So we're here to break that with a film that has a lot of talking. And I hope that, that Derek is still on. <laughs> as long as you don't break into song and start swearing by your tattoo, I think I'm okay with it. I've just noticed all the silent films that you've had this month, and you know we need to advance a few years in movie technology and uh, introduce, maybe reintroduce your fans to the talkie. And we're going to do that with the 1954 Walt Disney Productions film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. How are you doing this morning, Derek? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to talk about this film. This is not something that I've seen for a very very long time and i'm thrilled to talk about it with you and tracy who's also on the line right and i'm looking forward to talking about this film as well now scott and i actually had a chance to watch this on a large screen last may may 2013 while we were on a disney cruise ship of all things yes we were on the disney wonder and one morning we get our navigators, which is the little newspaper that tells you those things that are going on that day in the ship. And we notice, like at one o'clock in the afternoon in the Buena Vista Theater, they were going to show 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I thought, what better place to watch that film than on a boat? Wow. That is a great setting for this film, I think. 
I'm just glad the boat stayed above the water as opposed to the Nautilus going underwater. Well, that's true. <laughs> it hit a rough patch in certain parts of the movie and things started shaking around. Yeah. That would have been interesting. But not necessarily outside of the realm of possibility, considering it was a Disney experience. You know? <laughs> throw, <laughs> throw some extra things in here and there. Now, that would be really neat. I hadn't watched this movie since, man, I was a kid. I saw it on video, rented it on a VHS, or actually probably would have been a beta tape back then from the video store. And I had just have not seen it since then. Wow, what a film to revisit. And it's definitely Monster Kid Radio appropriate. It's got that giant squid. It's just awesome. But even before you get to the giant squid, you've got all sorts of weird, spooky things happening in this film. And you've got pretty close to an evil genius as well, which also is a uh, in the Monster Kid radio wheelhouse. Would you call Captain Nemo? I don't know. He's got a little bit of mad scientist in him, maybe. Yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd say yeah. more mad scientist than evil genius. But that's true. I would have. I would, should have gone saying that instead. Well, get it together, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to, you know was squoze too much by the squid there. <laughs> You were what? <laughs> Squoze by the squid, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. I think we have an album title for our cover band now. Squoze by the squid. <laughs> nice. Will you cover the Swear by My Tattoo song? Of course I will. There really isn't any other songs that have words in this, so I guess I'll have to go with that one. That's true. That's true. Now, I, I, I have to ask, and we're going to get to it, I'm sure. This song, was it put in because this was a Disney film and they were still figuring out how they were going to do live action movies? This is only the fifth time they did a live action film. So the Disney formula when it came to the animated features was you know, put a bunch of songs in it. Was this kind of a holdover from that? Well, this movie was actually intended originally to be an animated film. Really? Disney saw some of the early concept work that Harper Goff had done for this film and they decided to go live action instead. Wow. That's pretty ambitious. Yeah, now this the song was written, I think, probably to give Kirk Douglas a little more, kind of introduce his character, give him a little more personality. What I thought was interesting is how Paul Smith, the arranger and, and score artist for this film, carried the melody of that song through any time pretty much Kirk Douglas's character was the focus of the scene there was a, a different arrangement for it. When he was doing his action sequences, it would be a bold, heroic version of the sequence. When he was doing a little comedy bit, it would be kind of a quirky little version of the melody. But it was always was associated with him throughout the film, and I, I really enjoyed that. But yeah, definitely. I picked up on that as well. It's his theme, basically. You know, John Williams is known for doing this, giving each character an individual theme. Well, in this film, the song is actually called A Whale of a Tale, Sung by Douglas himself. It was written by Norman Gumbel and Al Hoffman, like you said. But Smith worked it into the score. Anytime he turned up, there was always something that called back to that song, which was really cool. I thought it was very smart and very clever. Yeah, Kirk Douglas actually learned to play the guitar for this role. He didn't know how to play the guitar before this film. And when they're playing Whale of a Tale for the first time that he's playing it there on the uh, warship, that little move that he does by flipping the guitar out and then bringing it back in, he created that while he was learning how to play guitar. That wasn't something he was shown how to do. And he was actually taught how to play guitar by Harper Goff, who was the 
non-credited production designer and art director for the film. And the reason he was uncredited is because he didn't have his union card for those roles at the time. Huh. And see, this is why we wanted to do this on Monster Kid Radio with the Disney Indiana High Muckety Mucks, because they know this film. They're going to bring the trivia. So awesome. <laughs> now, I still want to take the banjo lessons from Harper Goff. <laughs> Out at uh, Disneyland, if you go to Trader Sam's Enchanted Tiki Bar, Enchanted Tiki Bar, there is a, a sign on the wall offering uh, banjo lessons from Harper Goff. So not That's only awesome. could he play guitar, he could play banjo as well, apparently. That's really cool. Is that for real, or is that just kind of worked in the queue backdrop? It's a bar, actually. It's at the Disneyland oh, okay. Hotel, so it's just on the on the wall there in the bar. I don't think that Harper is actually still giving banjo lessons. <laughs> and, unfortunately, awesome. I don't think he's still with us. How awesome would that be, though? Yes. <laughs> well, we are kind of talking about some people involved in the production of the film. Why don't we knock out some more people here? Richard Fleischer is the director, and he's got quite a lineage himself when it comes to animation, but not on the Disney side. Richard Fleischer was the son of Max Fleischer, who was a rival of Walt Disney early in the history of animated cartoons. And at one point, Richard actually asked Walt if he knew who his father was. And Walt told Fleischer that, yeah, he hired him because he thought he was the best man for the job, regardless of his family affiliations. That's cool. Fleischer, Max Fleischer was involved in Betty Boop, Popeye, the original Superman cartoons. I mean, this guy is a legend himself. And for Disney to hire the guy, you know, his son, without really bearing a grudge or holding a grudge or any of that kind of thing. I mean, that's just amazing to me. And I think speaks a little bit to the character of Disney himself, right? I mean, am I projecting? <laughs> oh, no. Disney would always go for what was best for the project that he was working on. I mean, we can take that one step further. When this film was being made, the Disney Studios literally wasn't big enough. They didn't have all the stage space that they needed. And uh, they actually called Universal and 20th Century Fox and asked if they could use some of their sets and some of their areas for filming of, uh, of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Right. The opening scenes, a lot of the exterior sets were actually the Universal backlot and 20th Century Fox helped with some of the tank water tank scenes. Now, Disney huh. did build their own large water tank scene, which became Studio 3, I believe. And that's where they filmed a lot of the interior water shots. When you say the uh, back lot, we're talking about the, the little western town set up at the very beginning. San Francisco, basically. Yeah. It felt like a western to me. It felt like it an did. old school western setup. But uh, there was also the great, and I, I don't know if it was a matte painting or if it was just they actually had all of those big sailing ships with all the rigging and everything looked really cool there at the beginning. I think everything about this movie just looks really cool. There's a really good look here. And it's clear, even though this is, again, only the fifth time Disney tried to do a live action feature film, it's got the Disney magic just kind of oozing all over the film because it just looks Good. I found an article in the May 1984 Cinefantastique magazine that talks about this film as it was its 30th anniversary at the time. And they've got some quotes from Harper Goff talking about oh. the design of the Nautilus. Awesome. Goff's first challenge was to create a submarine that had the outward appearance of a sea monster. The book said that the Nautilus was mistaken by observers to be a terrifying sea creature, Goff said. I always thought that the shark and alligator were quite deadly looking in the water, so I based my design on their physical characteristics. The submarine's streamlined body, dorsal fin, and prominent tail simulated the traits of the shark. 
The heavy rivet patterns on the surface plates represented the rough skin on the alligator, while the forward viewports and top searchlights represented its menacing eyes. He goes on, Verne's Nautilus could go through the hull of an enemy ship like a needle through cloth. I designed four soft-toothed ridges that started at the prow and ran along the hull to the stern. Besides being capable of cutting through the hull of a ship, these projecting ridges also protected the submarine's viewports, lights, diving planes, and helical propeller from the ship's wreckage. Now, he goes on to say that Walt wasn't real sure he liked that design at first. He was expecting something very modern-looking. Goff says Walt showed him an aluminum cigar capsule and said, that's what I think the Nautilus should look like. He wanted something sleek and cylindrical. And this would have been a very different movie if Walt had had his way. Yeah. Yeah, I think if they would have gone with that, they would have had to have introduced torpedoes. Because I don't think that design would have been something that would have easily cut through another ship. The design of the Nautilus is menacing. You just look at that thing and it's like, that can go through wood or metal as easy as it can go through the water. Yeah, Goff also mentioned that a lot of the reason that the exterior and even the interior looks very kind of chunky and all the riveting and such is he figured that Nemo and his crew, when they escape from Rurapente and go off to Volcania, the materials they have would have to work with would be shipwrecks. They wouldn't have all this huge equipment to be able to smelt their steel and roll out nice pieces of plate steel. They'd be kind of cobbling things together from the wrecks. And so that's why both the exterior and the interior look kind of so chunky. So I, I was just amazed to see you know, how much thought Harper Goff put into the whole design aesthetic. Well, I think it totally paid off. I think the Nautilus looks amazing. I think it's so fun. I mean, it looks menacing, but it looks so fun. I want to run around that ship so bad. <laughs> oh. It just looks amazing. Well, right now, if you want to do that, you have to go to Tokyo. Okay. Pack your bags. We're going. <laughs> At Disney, uh, Tokyo Seas actually has a, a version of the Nautilus that you can go in. Uh, you can go uh, into different areas of the ship and explore it. Or you'd have to travel back in time to Tomorrowland in Disneyland from 1954 to 1960-something, where they had some of the sets from this film on display as a walkthrough attraction. Or you could uh, take your time machine to... Uh, the 70s and early 80s to Walt Disney World, where they actually had the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction where you got aboard the Nautilus and uh, experienced some of the scenes from the film. Well, all three of those sound real easy. Let's just, all, let's just do all three. <laughs> I'm up for it. You, you got enough pixie dust there, right? You know, you just take your bell hooking you up. Let's make it happen. I personally never did the, the Disneyland sub-ride. Uh, today, if you go there, it's all themed to Finding Nemo, and they have yellow submarines. But I do distinctly remember riding the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction at Walt Disney World in Florida. I have vague memory of the 20,000 Leagues ride at Disneyland. I went to Disneyland once as a kid. I couldn't tell you when. It was in the 80s sometime. But I do have vague memory of that, of a ride that took us underwater. Did I connect it to 20,000 Leagues? I don't know. You probably didn't because it was themed more on the nuclear submarine fleet from the 1960s. Yes. I remember a mermaid, though. I could yes. swear I yes. saw a mermaid. 
Yes, they did have even live girls dressed up as mermaids. At the uh, very beginning. At the very beginning, when Disneyland uh, first opened the attraction. And at the time, Walt Disney had the largest civilian fleet of submarines in the world. And the third largest submarine fleet total, I believe. Yes. Really? Yes. Third or fifth? I'd have to double check that. I, I, I was thinking third, but it was... It might have been fifth, but yeah, very high. Huh. And I know that they had taken one of the Nautilus when they dismantled the ride in Florida for a while. They took one of them to Castaway Key, which is Disney's private island that their cruise lines dock at, and sunk one of them out there. So if you did the uh, scuba diving, you could actually go in and dive on the Nautilus. But it's since it's deteriorated been, and been removed. Yes. That's too bad. I think the sub looks great. Oh, the Nautilus is awesome. Oh, man. I mean, everything inside the sub, the production design, the set design in there. Part of the reason why you guys are covering it on Disney Indiana is you guys are on a steampunk track right now. And this definitely has kind of like a proto-steampunk feel. Oh, the definitely. The all, the, all the brass, all the wood, all the, the exposed riveting. gears, the riveting. Yeah. Well, even the diving suits, the diving suits that they use are just embellished just a little bit. I mean, you, you can tell they're real diving suits, but they're embellished enough to give them that kind of steampunky kind of feel. And it's, yeah. again, it's not something that I picked up on the first time I watched it because back then, what's steampunk? I don't know. You know I was a kid. Right. Yeah, Harper Goff worked with Fred Zendar, who was a diving expert, to invent those suits. They weighed 225 pounds. Oh, man, I suddenly feel really bad for Peter Lorre. Yep. <laughs> the, the double tank units were used with enough air to allow the crew to stay underwater for almost an hour. Um, they had the heavy rubber diving suit. They also wore long woolen underwear and woolen socks. Even though they filmed this in the Bahamas, it was still pretty chilly once you get down to that depth. And uh, those diving suits allowed the cast and crew to spend 12 thousand man hours beneath the waves to film this movie wow you know i'm watching this movie and i've seen clips over the years i've seen pictures and like i said i saw it once as a kid but the amount of time they spend underwater in this movie not just in the sub but like in the suits Mm -hmm. i had forgotten all of that i mean there's so much in this movie where it's like oh yeah that's awesome i forgot that you know when they're moving around underwater, especially when there's a group of them during the first time we see the group of people underwater in those suits, that burial at sea, literally, sequence, I mean, that's just flat out creepy. And it makes me wonder how much practice, I'm assuming most of the scenes were filmed with stunt people, but how much practice they had to have with those suits to be able to move as well as they did. That's a really good point. They move like they're comfortable in the suits. What it's I not feel- like, you know, a bunch of guys who are just trying to get into the water. These guys had it down. I'm sure they were professional divers, or at least some of them were. And they even go to the extreme of showing the first time that Peter Laurie and Kirk uh, Douglas go under the water, that their characters aren't good at it, and they kind of fall behind everybody else. Yeah, and stumble mm-hmm. around a bit. Especially Peter Laurie's character. <laughs> oh, Peter Laurie. No. <laughs> Speaking of that scene where they first go underwater, and of course they go off, they don't understand that they're supposed to be there gathering food because they're sent out on a hunting expedition. But really they're going out there to harvest some food, capture some fish. Well, they see a shipwreck, and they go off, and they're off to get uh, treasure. Now, I don't know if you remember this scene, but they're in what looks like a 
mess hall or something in that ship and they find that that treasure and they're gonna uh, treasure chest they go up to put it on the table at that same time there's a nurse shark that swims behind the ship mm -hmm. that wasn't planned really yeah that nurse shark was just happened to be uh, out there in that area of the bahamas and swam by i think they caught it somewhat serendipitously but they then built some of the rest of that scene around that i think they went back and filmed some other elements because yeah. you do show them but the first time it shows on screen was a happy accident well i don't know if i'd consider it a happy accident if a shark showed up where i was working without announce but I, I i don't know how happy i'd be but that is pretty cool the way it goes by it seemed very intentional it really does make itself known through that little opening i suppose it's like rotted out wood or whatever you see it and it felt planned to me. I would have thought it was planned. That's pretty awesome. Well, and then the way Smith also gave it a little musical stinger as well. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. He, he was good at the musical stingers. There was a lot of those in this film. I think one of my favorite little musical sting pieces was the couple times that Douglas reached out and kind of ruffled Peter Laurie's hair, and then Laurie would reach up and smooth it back down. There was yeah. always a little, a little, bit, little musical bit of business there. I really liked those two together. By the way, I know Peter Laurie's introduced in the film as the apprentice or assistant to the professor, but once you get Douglas and Laurie's characters together, I love those two. They're great. You know, he's got this little buddy kind of thing going on, and Kirk Douglas is the alpha male, and I thought they were awesome together. Yeah, once they get to the Nautilus, the the, the three characters, the professor, his assistant, and uh, Ned. The group's kind of split because you get uh, Nemo and the Professor as a pair, and you get this, this awesome pairing of, of Douglas and Peter Laurie. I agree. I, I, some of the highlights of the film and some of the interaction, the two of them you know, sneaking around the ship or attempting to sneak around the ship was great to watch, and, and it was a lot of little humor bits in that as well. Yeah, there's a fun bit that was filmed for the Walt Disney TV show, that has uh, Kirk Douglas and Peter Lorre. They're kind of introducing and talking about the film, and there's some fun interaction between them as well. Well, that's cool. One of my favorite bits from the film is actually in the trailer as well, which I played on Monster Kid Radio, when they're talking together. Go ahead, hit me. Hit me right here. Come on, pal, hit me. And he's got that big smile, and he's like shoving his dimple out, you know, hit me in the chin, you know, whatever. And Peter Lorre slugs him in the stomach. I love that bit because the looks on their faces and – we're friends now, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a fun moment. I don't know if it carried out in the audio from the trailer, but, you know, people need to see that scene alone. Just to see the, the essence of these two kind of interacting on this set in this movie. Getting back to Kirk Douglas being the macho alpha male, mm -hmm. the uh, opening scene, originally Douglas wasn't supposed to be a part of that, that opening scene. In San Francisco, this where the, the two guys are standing in front of the crowds and arguing about whether they should go out in the seas or not. So Douglas had looked through the script and he was kind of disappointed that his character never made any appearances with any women. In fact, I think those are the only two women you ever see in this film. Oh, that's true. His character spent a lot of time in the movie talking instead of doing things. So in order to kind of promote his reputation with a movie going public as being a ladies' man, the writers went ahead and added in that scene where Ned Land strolls around with the two beautiful girls on each arm and then gets into the fight with the sailors. Which I believe those two women are named Minnie and what was the other girl? Tessie. Minnie and Tessie, which are the two women that he names in Whale of a Tale. During the commotion, you can actually hear their names yelled if you listen for them. I had read that on the trivia page of the IMDb, 
or maybe it was Wikipedia. I don't remember that from the beginning of the film. It might have just been something thrown in. You know, it's real. There, there's a lot of chaos. Yeah, there's a lot <laughs> of chaos. Scene. Yes. So, but that's cool. If there's a connection there, awesome. One of those girls was played by Lori Mitchell, wasn't she? Yes. I wish I'd realized that because I would have liked to have asked her a little bit about uh, what she remembers of that film. I know, right? We should have totally. I think we kind of knew it, but didn't really put it together. And Laurie Mitchell, you know, was in Queen from Outer Space, Attack of the Puppy People, done a lot of B-movies and, and Monster Kid type movies that we would talk about here on the show. So I like that opening sequence. It doesn't feel tacked on the way that it might, knowing how it came about. It felt very organic. Yeah, yeah and it gives you a good idea of, you know, that there's some people out there that are generally believe that there is a sea monster out there. And then you've got the other side where, you know, the shipping industry, they've got to get their work done. And it really introduces you to that back and forth that is needed there at the beginning of the film. I was a little unclear in terms of where Kirk Douglas's character was coming down, like why he was antagonizing the people talking about the monster. But once the fist fight starts, it doesn't matter. Well, I think he's sort of a, for lack of a better term, a harpoonist for hire. <laughs> But that's his trade. He's a harpoonist. I want to see his business card. <laughs> Have harpoon will travel, I guess. <laughs> but he that's basically what he is, is a harpoonist. And he needs the shipping industry to stay in business so he can make his living going out on the ships because that's all he knows is, is the shipping life. So he's in there to antagonize the, the group that believes that there are sea monsters out there and that they shouldn't be sending ships out into these areas because the monsters will attack them. Eventually, the government, the U.S. government, sends a warship out there, and that's the one little stretch that I have to give the movie is, why is Kirk Douglas on the ship? He's not in the Navy. He's not in the Army. He's not military. Again, he's the harpoonist for hire, just in case it really is a sea monster. Exactly. They want the best available. Nobody trained in the military on the ships that could fire a harpoon or throw a harpoon. Ah, but is there anybody in the military who can throw a harpoon and sing a song? Good and point. dance. And dance. And, and Oh, that's true. <laughs> and dance and do the cool little guitar flip. Yep. Got to be able to do that. So that's the one little stretch that, that I kind of have to give this film is, you know, how does he get on the ship? Why is he there? But you need him there. Because he's the star of the film. Because he's the star of the film. <laughs> yeah, well, he is the biggest the name stars. in the film. Yeah, he's the biggest name at the time. I and mean, this is Kirk Douglas is a huge star at this point, right? And James Mason is, too. I mean, James Mason, Captain Nemo, I don't know if they could have cast that better. He is so good. Again, we did see a quick reference that Gregory Peck had uh, auditioned for the role of Captain oh, Nemo. wow. Which would have been a very interesting casting choice. casting choice as well. Although I don't know if he would have looked as good in the mustache and beard. Well, maybe. I don't, it's hard to supplant James Mason's performance, though, just kind of even imagining about anybody else being in that role, because he's so good in this. Yeah, I mean, he does such a great job of being the tortured genius. The expressions on his face, the way he's able to express that conflict and that anger and anguish, all without saying a word. Again, it, it sometimes it runs very close to being overdone, but he manages to pull it back just in time. I like how the fact that he can go from nice and peaceful and explaining, you know, how the ship is built and what's going on to the almost manic type of feeling he gets when he attacks that ship that's leaving uh, Ruapente. It's almost like there's a switch in his brain that he turns on and off and just goes from this very nice, very reassuring type of character to this guy that you don't want anything to do with mm -hmm. Dr driven by vengeance 
there's a sense for me that he's got his crew and his crew follow him pretty much blindly. But when it comes to dealing with outsiders, he doesn't know how to really interact with people that aren't under his command. So when he is taking the professor on the grand tour of the Nautilus, there's a little bit of kind of showing off and pride. But I still get this sense that he's a little uncomfortable with the whole thing. And that really manifests itself, obviously, with Kirk Douglas's character. He does not like Ned Land at all. Well, and those feelings are exactly why he brings the professor on board to begin with. Yes. Because he can't deal with anybody outside of that ship. Like you said, the crew will follow him blindly, and they do, you find out at the end of the film. Oh, yeah. But the things that he has built for this ship, at the beginning of the film, he's to the point where he's starting to think that he's ready to share some of this technology with the rest of the world. Now, you got to remember, this was all taking place around 1900 or the late 1800s. And he's got all of this fantastic tech that he's ready to at least consider showing off to the world. But he's not the one that wants to do it. He's afraid of the anything outside of that boat, really. So he sees this opportunity because he recognizes the professor. He recognizes his work, thinking, I'm going to bring him on, show him. And then he's the man that I'm going to send out into the world to start sharing some of this technology that I've invented. And I think Aaron Axe would have been on board with that. I really do. Yes, I do too, because you know there at the end, when they're trying to escape, he wants to go back in to get his uh, journal. And that's why, because he, he's got some notes on some of this tech that he wants to share. And of course, they run out of time, and uh, Douglas just has to deck him to take him out of there. The professor is played by Paul Lucas, who I don't know as well when it comes to the other three leads. But I think he held his own just fine against these powerhouses of like Douglas and Mason. I love the beginning with his interactions with Peter Laurie. I love those as well before Peter Laurie changes, <laughs> which person he's in a little buddy up to. But I think he did pretty well, especially in those scenes with Mason where Mason's kind of showing him around the boat and showing off a little bit and sharing his knowledge. I want to go back to something that I think it was Tracy that said that Every once in a while, Mason seems to get real close to the line of kind of overdoing it. I think an example of a scene in which he did not do that and extremely well, kind of the other side of that, is when they first, well, the Nautilus is going to kill him. They take the three. They take Ned and the professor and Peter Laurie's character, whose name I don't think I can pronounce this early in the morning. They (laughs) put him on top of the Nautilus and Nemo's like, we're going under. They're done. Mm-hmm. The sea brought you. The sea's going to take you away. And there's this look on his face where you don't know, is Nemo really going to kill these three? Yeah. You know, there's this sense of detachment, but there's just a glimmer of expectation. He kind of hopes that the professor is going to really do something to convince him to not kill him. It's one of the best moments in the film for me when it comes to Mason's performance. Well, I know when I first saw this film, when I was very young, I knew nothing of star billing and Kirk Douglas is out there that they're going to make him. He's going to make it to the end of the movie because he's the star. I I knew none of that. I really thought that Nemo was going to drown the three of them because Nemo was so what little you knew of him at that point of the film. He was very phobic of the outside world. You knew you could tell Mm -hmm. that from him and he didn't want any outsiders on the ship. I figured that they were going to cast those three off to the sea and then the rest of the film you were going to follow Captain Nemo and the, and the Nautilus. The first time I saw this was shocked that he let them live. And again, what proved to Nemo that these men were worthy was their dedication to each other. I think 
that is his driving force, obviously shown by his relationship with his crew, is being loyal and being true to your compatriots. Well, mm-hmm. I think Nemo saw the, um, the way that he, the professor was loyal to the other two. The professor, I don't think, ever trusted Ned Land at all. He saw Peter Lorre's Concell just as a necessary evil because he was with the professor. The professor is the only one that I think that um, Nemo trusted. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I would. <laughs> as much as he is the top build star, I wouldn't have trusted Douglas's uh, Ned Land character at all. Well, I mean, Douglas comes right out and, and during that meal, doesn't he say something about a prisoner's duty is to try to escape? Yeah. And that's one of my favorite. Man, this movie has got so many great scenes and set pieces. The whole dinner sequence. You mean this isn't lamb? Well, okay. So <laughs> that's fun. You know, yeah. and that's a fun moment. But the conversation that happens about we're neither guests nor prisoners, but somewhere in between. I mean, there's this wonderful yes. bit of dialogue exchange between them all. And Peter Laurie's face as he's kind of – it's like he's watching a tennis match as he's watching back and forth between Nemo and Land kind of bicker a little bit. And the professor throwing a few things in. And Laurie's got this great expression on his face as he's trying to figure out where he fits in all this. It's a great sequence. Yeah. Especially in that scene, I think in some ways, Laurie's character is kind of meant to represent the audience. He's just kind of along for the ride. That makes sense. And if you're going to have anybody who's going to be casting his eyes back and forth repeatedly, you might as well use Laurie because he's got those great eyes anyway, right? I haven't seen Peter Laurie in a lot of things. I know things that he's known for and everything. Because he's got a, a very good sense of comic timing in a lot of the scenes, which really surprises me every time I see this film. Because he's not known for comedy, is he? No, not really. I, at least when I think of Peter Laurie, I don't think comedy. But when I really kind of start to look at some of the films that I've seen him in, he's got some quips and some one-liners. And it's really interesting to kind of maybe look at him with some comedy or, or kind of keeping comedy in mind because you see some of that kind of manifesting itself in some of the other monster or horror movies that he did. Of course, when he was with Vincent Price, you can't help but kind of not really ham it up, but get really quippy. Yeah, maybe wit versus comedy ah, is a better yes, way to put that's it. Good. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, there's definitely a wit there, a dark wit. And one that I think every time that I see it, even in, you know, I've seen this film several times, always throws me a little bit the first few times that I see this in him because it's not what I expect from him. And I love it for that. Yeah. Oh, no, he's great. Yeah. And again, Laurie said, talking about his role in this film, he said, the role that I usually play was actually played by the squid. You're going to have to come back here in a couple of days for part two of our conversation about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We are at the point in the conversation where we're almost about to talk about that giant squid, which is just awesome. So come back for that. Also, come back here in a couple of weeks because I have more conversation with Keith Foster, as well as a few other people that I ran into at Rose City Comic Con. We're going to be playing that on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. Keep it locked in at monsterkidradio.net to find out what's coming up next, or again, follow us on Facebook, or you know what? I'm even on LinkedIn now, so if we are connected on LinkedIn, you might see something there as well. Again, big thanks to Scott and Tracy, Disney Indiana, awesome show. Can't say enough good things about the show. Recommend people check that out. And Keith, thank you for taking the time to chat with me at Rose City Comic Con. Big thanks to you guys and gals for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. 
Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Surfing in the Cane. That belongs to the band The Dead Rocks. You can find them at deadrocks.com.br or look up their album International Brazilian Surfs. It appears on this episode with their permission. Talk to everybody here in a couple of days. (laughs) 